Hello everyone, uh, thank you for joining us for this latest podcast from the Herbert Smith Freehills Pensions Team. My name's Tim Smith, I'm a professional support lawyer in the Pensions Team here at HSF and I'm delighted to be joined today by Caroline Escott who's a trustee of the Standard Life Master Trust. Caroline, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, today we're going to be discussing uh, a variety of issues related to the subject of pensions and diversity. This is the latest podcast in our series on that subject. Previous episodes have featured Dana Gray, Director of Legal at the PPF, and Tracy Blackwell from Pensions Insurance Corporation. Um, Caroline, for those um, listeners that kind of don't know much about you, could you perhaps start just by telling us a bit about your own story and your career journey to date? Uh, yes, of course. So um, I am currently um, Senior Investment Manager at RPMI Railpen. I lead their corporate governance and their stewardship work across the range of assets. It's a DB um, scheme mostly uh, with a DC aspect to it as well. And I started out studying economics and politics at university because it felt to me like that intersection between the two was where the really interesting stuff happens um, and what it's what makes the world go round as well and that has really been a theme of my career too so from university I worked in lobbying and I worked in parliament for a few years as well undertaking research on financial services issues and from then I moved into doing policy work at a number of different financial services trade associations always working on a mixture of pensions issues, investment issues, responsible investment as stewardship as well. And my the role I had before I joined Railpen about six months ago was at the Pension Lifetime Savings Association where I led their investment and stewardship work. And the PLSA was really interesting because it it not only allowed me to do the, the really interesting policy work, but it also let me dip my toe in the water of doing some of the practical side of stewardship so doing the collective engagement drafting the industry guidelines for, for how you should look to undertake good stewardship and it was that role and that work in particular that really led me to to thinking about how interesting it would be and how much I would like to get just a little bit closer to the beneficiaries and to be able to put some of the policy work that I'd been responsible for into practice so I uh, leapt at the opportunity to join Railpen to do just that. And more personally for this particular podcast, um, I also became a trustee at the Standard Life Master Trust, where um, I am obviously together with the board responsible for a whole range of issues. Um, but in particular, my interest is around ESG and stewardship and making sure that we hold the provider to account on the issues that really matter to our members. Mm-hmm. Great. So quite a, a varied uh, background and you've clearly got kind of experience working um, across the kind of pensions and, and investment sectors. Um, what are your views on how those sectors are doing as far as diversity and inclusion are concerned? Mm, so it's possibly more accurate for me anyway to talk about it in two different ways. So I think there's what the statistics are telling us. And then what my sense is of the industry perspective and and debate around diversity and inclusion. And if you look at the data, and the data that we have 
it's, it's now a little out of date. So a lot of the available statistics come from around 2015, 2017. So I think in 2017, there was a survey that said that less than 3% of trustees in the pensions industry were under 40, um, and that 83% of trustees are male. And this does lag some of the uh, other diversity stats and sort of other industries like like FTSE boards, for instance, where gender diversity and, and ethnic, ethnic diversity seems to be doing much better. Um, so if you look at the statistics, it's pretty disheartening mm-hmm. um, state of affairs. But what does give me cause for hope is that it really feels like the last few years there is quite a significant amount of momentum um, at every different level of the industry and from all different aspects um, behind encouraging diverse representation, not only on decision-making boards, but also all the way throughout the industry. So, you know, you, you discuss that I've had a experience across different sectors and, and the investment industry and the pension industry as well. I think my feeling is that maybe the investment industry was on the ball on diversity a little bit ahead of the pension sector. So we've had things like the Diversity Project up and running for, for some time. The FCA has also been talking about the importance of diversity in its work on culture and regulation for, mm-hmm. for quite a few years now. But the pensions industry, there's this huge, I think, really interesting, really exciting range of stuff going on. So we know that the pensions regulator, for instance, has in the latest phase of its work on 21st century trusteeship, been explicitly focusing on how it and the industry can work together to encourage more diverse trustee boards. And it highlighted a lot of the available evidence around the benefits of diverse and inclusive trustee boards for decision-making as well. And then there are lots of different initiatives springing up too. So I have to mention NextGen because I'm vice chair of it, <laughs> um, recently vice chair, and um, you know that's been doing a, a whole load of really great work in terms of encouraging, promoting fresh faces and new perspectives uh, in the pensions industry. There's also initiatives like OPEN, um, Diversity in Pensions, and the Young Pension Trustees Network. So I think there's this real sense of urgency around it, only enhanced by movements like Black Lives Matters too. But I think what we could really do with actually, I mentioned the fact at the beginning that that some of the data was a little bit out of date. It would be great if TPR or some others would work together to help us get a sense of the state of the nation when it comes to trustee diversity, what trustees would actually look like now and what kinds of activities are being undertaken by trustee boards across the full spectrum in terms of improving the diversity of their representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in terms of your own personal experience um, through your kind of life and career, are there any particular obstacles or difficulties you've encountered um, kind of related to diversity inclusion? Um, and, and if so, how have you kind of sought to, to address those and overcome them? So I have to recognise that in a couple of ways I am quite privileged. So I am white, I am university educated, I'm middle class, so in many ways quite typical of the industry as it currently stands. Of course, I'm also female and even though I'm in my mid-30s, still generally one of the, the younger, the youngest trustees 
in in a given room or virtual room, of course, in the in the, in the new normal um, at the moment. Um, and I'm quite often the youngest person in the panel or in company meetings as well when I do some of my um, engagement and stewardship work. In terms of obstacles, I don't think there's any one defining moment or one particular challenge that I highlight, but instead it feels like just the accumulation of hundreds, you know, thousands different little everyday sexisms. So uh, for many years, um, often as the only woman in quite a male-dominated industry, um, often not the most junior person um, or the person in a particular meeting or room that was actually responsible for presenting, mm -hmm. it was still the, the default question was, Caroline, would you mind making us some tea or fetching us a coffee or taking the minutes? Um, and I think something that was particularly, but not exclusively related to working in Parliament was having to approach networking requests um, with caution. I think possibly the final thing that I'd highlight, and also because it's something that still happens a bit more often nowadays, is um, men addressing men. So one instance sticks in my brain from not that long ago, which was when I was interviewing a particular role as myself and a junior male colleague, and a couple of the male interviewees exclusively addressed, made eye contact with my male colleague. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of really feeling a little a cut off from that conversation as well. So mm -hmm. I, it's, it's an accumulation of things, mm -hmm. but I also feel lucky because I don't think, even though it's hard to build a counterfactual, like it necessarily stood in my way of getting interesting opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's fair to say that I have also had to develop behaviours and, and certain attitudes to try to overcome gender bias. So quite early on in my career, I, I read something called Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, which I'd really recommend mm -hmm. um, to anyone who's looking for a, quite a snappy, practical book. And it talks about nice girl syndrome and mm -hmm. being self-effacing and asking for permission and, and, you know, potentially lacking the confidence to speak up in meetings and a thousand and one little things that, mm -hmm. that you know, some women still still automatically fall into because that's the way in which we society has encouraged us to behave, mm -hmm. but that are behaviours that won't necessarily get you that corner office or that leadership role um, as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always worked quite hard to, to be visible, uh, to shamelessly um, self-promote, to speak up in meetings um, early and often, putting myself forward for, for the interesting opportunities that come my way, um, and also being stubborn. This is a tiny thing, but being stubborn about um, refusing to let myself be interrupted in meetings. So if someone tries to jump in and I'm in the middle of the sentence, I will continue um, doing that. But, mm -hmm. you know, these are all tactical things, and I think they help. Mm -hmm. um, but it really shouldn't just be up to individuals to develop these kinds of tactics because they only help that individual and in fact what needs to happen is there needs to be a more uh, structural change that the system needs to change which is one mm -hmm. of the reasons why I'm involved in initiatives such as NextGen um, and uh, uh, something that falls halfway between, between the two between the tactical and, and the system changes you know I've benefited from some wonderful mentors and sponsors throughout my career and mm -hmm. I try to pay that forward by, by mentoring. In fact, I only, I only mentor young women. That wasn't a deliberate decision. Um, but um, thinking about it, maybe that does feel like an area where I can potentially add value 
and help them avoid some of the mistakes that, that I've made um, and to learn from some of the things that some of the issues that I've faced. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it saddens me to hear some of the uh, stories and that, that you've told there in terms of some of your experiences. Do, do, do you think overall things are improving in that space or, or do you think there's still some way to go? In terms I think things are improving. I think, I think that a meaningful progress and changing the mindset, not only of individuals, but of an entire industry, um, it, it, it takes time and it doesn't happen overnight. So I think first we need the industry to recognise that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And the PLSA, towards the end of last year, did this survey of trustees and of pension scheme managers. Um, I think it was something like 84% or something very high in the 80s agreed that diversity was a, a good thing that it made sense from a hard-nosed business perspective, that it could improve innovation, innovative thinking, that it might help trustee boards better reflect the membership. Um, and most of the people who responded to that survey also thought that the industry needed to do more. I think that the sticking point for, for many trustee boards is, okay, well, you know, we, we understand that something needs to change, but how do we actually go about achieving that change? Um, so when I was at the PLSA, one of the things I, I did, in addition to the stewardship stuff, was I also coordinated the trustee, well, sorry, the broader diversity and inclusion work that the PLSA was doing. That was one of, one of the things that we were so keen to do that mm-hmm. we published actually around this time last year was the first practical trustee guide for, for improving your diversity and inclusion. Mm. Um, and I know that Aon has published something similarly. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much stuff that you can do. And it, it, all of it sounds a little small, but, but the taken together, I think, can really make a difference. And mm-hmm. we split it into two different aspects. So there's the recruitment yep. of a diverse trustee board and then the retention mm-hmm. of a diverse trustee board. Um, and in terms of the recruitment, it's anything from having a formal diversity and inclusion policy just stating that it actually matters to you making sure that you write your job adverts in inclusive language Mm -hmm. um, having a blind cv uh, or application process and there are so many different apps and technologies that can help you do that now and also i think Speaking to some of the trustee boards and pulling this guy together, I think the best trustee boards are all about developing the pipeline. Um, mm. So if you spoke to some talented people who didn't quite make it onto the trustee board that time around, making sure that you supported them to fulfill their potential, you, for instance, directed them uh, to the trustee toolkit, or you held coffee sessions or, mm-hmm. or you know, had separate catch-ups just to try to keep them warm and to make sure that the next time an opportunity came around, mm-hmm. these people were had been given as much support as they possibly could do in order to, to shine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on, on the retention side of things, that's where the inclusivity piece comes in. So I think as an industry, but I would say it's not just the pensions industry that does this, everyone talks about diversity but they forget that the other bit of it is inclusivity. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with your diverse board once you've got them there? How do you make them feel welcome? How do you ensure that you create a culture of, of open dialogue and of active bystanders as well? Um, mm. So that the, the people who are there who are a little newer, who are a little less experienced, who 
who haven't necessarily seen many people like themselves on a mm-hmm. trustee board feel welcome um, and, and feel like they are well supported to, to contribute and that their contributions are valued. Yeah. That kind of leads me on to my next question, which is around kind of diversity of thought, because you know diversity is often viewed through the lens of gender, age, race, um, kind of the, the, these um, these sorts of characteristics. Uh, but but kind of another important aspect of diversity is is diversity of thought, and I'd be interested to know kind of what steps perhaps you're taking on the Standard Life Master Trust, or you've seen in your experience to encourage diversity of thought among trustees uh, and to avoid so-called groupthink? Um, so, yes, I've got, you know, very personal experiences of, of how it was approached. Um, having only been a trustee for a year, um, so recruited about 18 months ago now. And from the very beginning of the recruitment process, it was clear to me that this was an organisation for whom diversity really mattered. So mm-hmm. it was in the job description, that they were looking not only for people with the right mix of skills and expertise and, and ways of thinking, as you, as you referred before, but also for diverse perspectives more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that appeals to me instantly. And then throughout the next conversations and, and interviews as well, there were an awful lot of questions around not just my experience, but also um, trying to probe how I approached decision making, how I approached problem solving. And you could tell that they were doing that to try to understand how you would work as part of a trustee board mm-hmm. um, and also to make sure that they had a number of different people who, as you say, sort of were cognitively diverse that looked at things from a slightly different perspective mm-hmm. and thought about things in a different way. So that's, that's how you ensure, as you say, that you avoid all those kinds of behavioural biases that we know are really bad for yep. decision-making. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the, the retention aspect and, and the inclusivity aspect, so um, bearing in mind this is my first trustee position, bearing in mind that I am very young for a trustee, so I think the average trustee is 56. Um, it's Everyone has been very, very welcoming. So... It, my personal experiences have emphasised to me the important role of the chair mm-hmm. in creating a culture where everyone is invited to contribute on every issue and we're given the space and the time to be able to do so. And there are a number of different ways we can contribute. It's made clear to us we can, we can you know, speak up in the meeting, we all do, uh, because we all have quite a few opinions and, and, and uh, look at things from a number of different ways, but also in between meetings too. Mm-hmm. And very much this attitude of there is no such thing as a stupid question so mm-hmm. i have never felt anything less than welcome and there isn't formal mentoring but there's definitely a culture amongst the trustees of helping each other out and mutual support mm-hmm. um, so we all recognize because we come from different backgrounds so we have a lawyer we have an investment manager we have myself for the esg and stewardship someone else an insurance background and communications and marketing and so on um, that there will be areas where we will need to um, be supported um, either by the appropriate training or we quite often between ourselves pick up the phone and have separate discussions with other trustees. Mm-hmm. So I know, and I felt this way right from the start, that if I have a particular question about a legal issue, for instance, 
mm-hmm. it's called Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I wanted to, to understand what you know, good communication marketing looks like, I could call um, Andrew, mm-hmm. and so on. And they you know they could do the same with me, and they have done the same with me for ESG and stewardship. Mm-hmm. So that's really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that it's sort of part of our broader approach to good governance, which is that, of course, we have this um, annual board effectiveness review. We do these annual skill audits. And not only is that helpful in terms of determining that the training program Mm-hmm. the next year but they're also incorporated within that questions around the diversity and inclusivity of the board as well and of course it's all anonymous um, and we have other opportunities to to express our views we're actively encouraged to express our views around how inclusive we feel the board is and how effectively it encourages um, challenge and and debate but also provide that that level of comfort that with three out of five of the trustees board having been there for, for a year or so mm-hmm. um, is really important. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting and, and great to hear how seriously it's being taken. I just got one final question before we uh, we bring things to a close, but just if you had a message for the industry kind of in this space on, on kind of D&I and, and the issues you've covered, what, what would it be? Um. So I think it would be, um, oh gosh, there are so many. One key overarching message, I think it would be that diversity and inclusion is not just good in itself to do, but also absolutely vital for investment decision making. In Mm -hmm. the same way that you expect the companies that you invest in to have diverse boards that are able to, to challenge each other, that are able to make effective decisions, and you think that that is good for corporate performance and for member savings and, and the value of member savings, you should take that same logic and you should apply it to yourself. And there's so much around now that can help you think about taking those first steps. It might seem like a huge, scary challenge when you're first looking at it, but there are a number of small tweaks done with clear aim in mind and with a full understanding of the benefits can really help to ensure that your decision-making board or whatever it might be um, really delivers the interest of the full range of diverse savers. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join me today and for um, for sharing your thoughts and, and experiences. Um, I said uh, this is part of a, a wider series on diversity and inclusion in, in the pensions industry. Um, so do look out for our um, other podcasts, subscribe to our blog or on SoundCloud or uh, iTunes to this series and you'll be sent future episodes. So thanks for listening and Caroline, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Tim. <laughs>